We continue our sermon series in the book of 1 John. So we invite you to turn there if you have a Bible. If you don't have a Bible, the words will be on the screen behind me. Also in our church app, uh, you will find a sermon listening guide, scriptures printed at the top. 1 John chapter 2, verses 18 through 27. Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that it might become plain that they all are not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you have all knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. But the anointing that you receive from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. One ad executive from a major corporation shared how there's been a, a massive transformation that's undergone uh, in the marketing, in the advertisement world. He says there was the day when you would, as a brand manager or as an ad executive, design and promote a product. But now it's shifted to what he would describe as this, to create a meaning system for people through which they get identity and an understanding of the world. Now advertisement has almost risen to a level of transcendence, putting transcendence in a product. This executive in studying this, began to study cults and what produces cult-like behavior, right, where loyalty goes beyond any kind of logical reason. And as he studied cults and then as he watched how people interacted with products, right, whether it's a pair of sneakers or some paper plates, how people would speak of these products in almost religious terms, of the meaning they found in it. And he made the note that now it's no longer just customers, but it's disciples who join a, a, a meaningful movement that's around a product. That now it's about not just communicating information about a product, it's actually telling stories that create this world of meaning that you can find. He went on to say the goal of this marketing is to fill the empty places where non-commercial institutions like schools and churches might have once done the job. 
Now, this is one example of deception in our world because, as you know, the promise of meaning to be found in a product never delivers. You never ultimately find what's being presented or what's being promoted. It always fails to live up to the hype or to what it's delivering. And that's why we live in a deceptive world. This is one example. I could name a a bunch of examples. The reality is John writes to a church in the first century full of people who were being deceived. John writes to them to tell them to stand firm in the midst of that deception. The question is how? How do you stand firm in the midst of a very deceptive world. First, first by recognizing deception. Verse 18, children, it's the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. Now, last hour and Antichrists, got to define those. First, last hour, what does that mean? Well, last hour is similar to the phrase that you would read in the Gospels, last days. It describes the the, the season or the period between Christ's first and second coming. Now, you may hear last hour, recognizing that John wrote this in the first century, and we're nearly 2,000 years later, and say, obviously, his prophecy is false because Christ hasn't returned yet. But there's two reasons why John's prophecy holds true and why we are in the last hour. First is this. The last hour means that nothing else has to happen before Jesus Christ returns to this world to rescue it once and for all. That means that Christ could return in the middle of this worship service. Or that means that Christ could return 500 years from now. Only God the Father knows when Christ is going to return, but nothing else has to happen. So that means that Christ will return without warning. And that's why it's the last hour. And we live in the last hour just as John readers lived in the last hour in the first century. Now, antichrists, who are they? Well, the word anti, when it's added to a person's name or title, either means the claim to be that person or it means opposition to or substitution for that person. Jesus Christ himself warned that there would be false Christs or antichrists who would appear in the last days, the last hour between his first and second coming. He says this in Matthew 24. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. John distinguishes between the Antichrist that's to come at the end of time and the Antichrist that have already come whose influence is already felt. The Scripture describes both. John focuses in on these Antichrists that have come whose influence is already being felt. Now, who are they? Verse 19. They went out from us, but they were not of us. 
For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. This group that we've been talking about that left the church and started their own fellowship, John calls them here antichrists. And what's unique about this is in every other part of the scripture where it talks about antichrists, it's an attack from the outside. Here, it's describing antichrists who were once former members of the Christian community. Now, why is this significant? Because over history, there's been a lot of speculation and a lot of sensational curiosity around who is the antichrist. And over the centuries, it's been you know, an opponent of the church, an opponent of Christianity, and lots of speculation, and it's very sensational. Who is the Antichrist? In John's teaching here, he removes the speculation. He removes the, the sensational curiosity and says here that a church split and doctrinal division is the work of evil and the work of Antichrist. So he takes something that over history has just been something sensational and brings it into where it's very relevant for today, very relevant for your day-to-day -day life. How? Well, how do you identify an antichrist? Verse 22, who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son. An antichrist is someone who denies that Jesus is the Son of God who came in the flesh. A person that denies that Jesus is the Son of God who came in the flesh. And the purpose of antichrist is to deceive people. Verse 26. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. So deception, what does the word deceive mean? It means to cause someone to believe something that's not true. What happened in this church is that you had this group of people that left the church to start their own fellowship, but not only that, they claim to be Christians. They claim to have fellowship with God. They claim to live in God. As we've seen, they claim to no longer sin. They claim to have this special anointing, this special revelation from God, and they were using that to entice and draw people away and into their fellowship. What's the source of this kind of deception? Paul says in 1 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, the coming of the lawless one, that's Antichrist, is by the activity of Satan with all wicked deception. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 11 that Satan masquerades or disguises himself as an angel of light. John himself identifies the source of this deception in his gospel in John 8, 44. The devil was a murderer from the beginning and has nothing to do with the truth 
because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Now, how do you recognize deception? Deception denies that Jesus is the Christ, that he's the Son of God who has come in the flesh as a human being. How do you detect deception? How do you recognize it? And the reason I ask is that sometimes it's hard to detect. Sometimes it's very nuanced, hard to see. This is how Christian cults get started. Right? It's a slight, very minor, seemingly very minor tweak on the person and the work of Jesus Christ. In the early centuries, it was the denial that Jesus was fully human. It was, well, he's kind of human. Kind of human, but mostly hologram. It was the denial in the early centuries that Jesus was fully God. He's not really God. He's something just a little bit less. It was in those early centuries, the denial that Jesus was born of a virgin. In the first century, it was the denial that Jesus bodily rose from the grave. Now, these are all very much alive today and the work of Satan and the work of Antichrist. But let me identify some more subtle denials that Jesus is the Christ that are a little more nice and believable, yet just as destructive. Like I said, it's a minor tweak on the person and work of Christ that is deceiving. Here are a few examples. Christ is love, but he's not the judge who's going to return to judge the living and the dead. Christ loves everyone, but he would never cast judgment on how do you choose to live your life. Yes, Christ is love, but he's also judge who's returning to judge the living and the dead. Another example, Christ is a great teacher, and his primary purpose was to come and teach us how we should live our lives. Yes, Christ was a phenomenal teacher, phenomenal preacher, but he didn't just tell people how to live, he preached and taught about who he was, his identity. Final example. Christ is a great moral example. And the reason that he came was to live a life that was morally exemplary and that we could live like him. Now, no doubt, Christ was a great example of how to live. But he is not primarily an example. He's a savior who came to rescue people who could not follow his example. Right? Doctrine about Christ matters. And when I say doctrine, I simply mean the truths about who Jesus Christ is. It's not just about believing in Christ. It's about believing in the right Christ, the biblical Christ. C.S. Lewis was an atheist. He turned to Christ in his adult years, and he wrote this in his book, Mere Christianity. I am trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, 
but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. How do you stand firm in a deceptive world? You recognize deception. And you recognize those slight tweaks on the person and work of Christ that throw the gospel out the window. But second, you stand firm in a deceptive world by remembering your anointing, your anointing. Verse 20, but you have been anointed by the Holy One and you have all knowledge. Now, who is the Holy One? John says in his gospel in John 6 that the Holy One is Jesus Christ. So you have been anointed by Jesus Christ. Here is what is profound about what John says here. He's speaking to these people who are being deceived. And his first counsel to them on how they are to stand firm against the deception is something that has been done to them without their help. You have been anointed. That's passive tense. That means something's been done to them. They have been anointed by Jesus. Now, what's the anointing? Verse 27. But the anointing that you received from him abides in you. And you have no need that anyone should teach you. The anointing is the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit upon faith in Christ that comes to dwell in the human heart. So the Holy Spirit is the anointing. Now, interesting, the word anointing here, in, twice in verse 27, once in verse 20, it's the only time this, a word, this word appears in the New Testament. And I believe its uniqueness is tied to the uniqueness of the situation and the context into which John is writing. This group of people that broke away from the church, they still claimed to know God, to have fellowship with God, to be believers. They still claimed to live in God. They, even as we saw, they claimed to be without sin. And we see here with this word anointing and the uniqueness of it, that they claim to have a special anointing from God. They claim to have received this special revelation from God. That you can imagine if you're in the shoes of these people in this first century in this church, it's very enticing, it's very attractive. 
And I'm sure this group that broke away were proclaiming to them, we have this anointing, we have this special revelation from God. Come listen to us. Come join our fellowship. And John says to them, no, they aren't anointed. You are. You have received the anointing of the Holy Spirit. You have the revelation of God. It is the word of God. Now, what's the significance of this, or what's the takeaway? False prophets in our day gain a following in this way, by claiming an anointing, by claiming a special revelation from God. This is how cults get started. This is how false prophets gain a following. Several years ago, there was a pastor who on Good Friday claimed to meet with Jesus Christ in person, that Jesus Christ had appeared to him in person and had given him a special revelation to deliver on Easter Sunday morning. Now you can imagine how enticing and how tempting it would be to flock to that person to hear what God had told him. And yet, what John describes 2,000 years ago is something very similar. These people had broken away and said, we have the anointing and the special revelation of God. Listen to us. And John says, no, you are anointed with the Holy Spirit. So how do we think about this phrase that John uses when he says, you have no need that anyone should teach you? What's John saying there? It's ironic because John's writing them a whole letter of teaching. So he's teaching them. Does John mean that you have no need to be taught because now you have the Holy Spirit in you, the internal witness of the Spirit, you don't need anyone to teach you. So I can just stop preaching and teaching right now. And you can stop listening to sermons. No, that's not what John means. He's saying you no longer have to listen to these people. And you no longer should listen to their teaching because you're the one that's anointed and not them. You have the word of God. You have the revelation of God in his word. Here's the takeaway. The Holy Spirit only and always draws attention to the word of God. John defines the word of God in John chapter one as Jesus Christ. The word of God became flesh and dwelt among us. That means that the Holy Spirit only and always draws attention to one person, and that's Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit never draws attention to you or any other person that would claim an anointing or claim a special revelation from God. The Spirit lives in you, and you have that confidence that as you face a deceptive world, and even a deceptive religious world, you can stand firm through the Holy Spirit. How do you stand firm in a deceptive world? Recognizing deception, remembering your anointing, and finally, by abiding in Christ. Verse 24. 
Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. Now notice what John says here. Your ability to abide in Christ depends on you letting the message of the gospel and your anointing, verse 27, Holy Spirit, abide in you. If John's first proclamation was that your ability to stand firm in a deceptive world is something that God has done that you didn't help with, right? And that is to anoint you with the Holy Spirit. Now John turns to, well, what is your role? What is your role in standing firm? And he says, it's you abiding in Christ, but the only way you can abide in Christ is if you let the message of the gospel, the person of Christ, the Holy Spirit, abide in you. Abiding is relational. It's relational. It's not merely doctrinal and behavioral. Jesus defines it in John chapter 15 when he talks about abiding and he uses the imagery of a vine and branches. Jesus says, I'm the vine, you're the branches. No branch bears fruit unless it abides in the vine. So abiding is relational, not merely doctrinal or behavioral. There's a big difference between the, the doctrinal truth or the gospel truth about Jesus Christ existing in you versus abiding in you. Now, what's the difference? between existing and abiding. It's the difference between taking a potted plant and setting it on top of your mulch bed in front of your house versus taking that potted plant out of the pot, digging a hole and burying it or planting it. The potted plant that you set on top of the mulch bed will get blown away in a storm. That's what existing looks like. That's what it means to have the gospel truth exist in you. But that potted plant that you've pulled out of the pot, dug a hole, and planted it in the soil is rooted. And when the storm comes, it endures. That's a picture of what it means to abide. That's what it looks like for the gospel truth to abide in your heart, to actually take root in your heart. Consider the example of, doctrinal example of Christ's humanity. That Christ is fully human. You can either intellectually acknowledge Christ's humanity or you can experience Christ's humanity in such a way that it takes root in your heart. Have you experienced Christ's humanity in the dark days of suffering? Have you experienced him being with you in your suffering? Have you experienced him sympathizing with your weaknesses? Have you experienced him comforting you by coming alongside of you? Right? That's Christ's humanity 
relationally abiding in your heart. Or consider Christ's deity, him being fully God. Has, has Christ's deity become more than just intellectual knowledge, but become an experience that you have had where it takes root in you, that in your storm, in your chaos, when everything is spinning out of control, have you experienced Christ calming you, giving you a peace that you can't explain, taking root in your heart? Jonathan Edwards, who was powerfully awakened and converted to Jesus Christ at the age of 17, went on to become a pastor. And he said this, expounding on this through some helpful imagery. He says, there's a difference between having an opinion that God is holy and gracious and having a sense of the loveliness and beauty of that holiness and grace. There's a difference between having a rational judgment that honey is sweet and having a sense of its sweetness. A man may have the former that knows not how honey tastes, but a man cannot have the latter unless he has an idea of the taste of honey in his mind. The difference between rationally understanding that honey is sweet but having never tasted it and tasting honey and therefore knowing and sensing its sweetness. When you put your trust in Jesus Christ, a set of doctrinal truths does not take up residence in your heart. A person. A person takes residence in your heart. Jesus Christ, yes, he's defined by truths of who he is, but it's a person that comes to live in you and takes root in your heart. Here's the question I would ask you. Is your doctrine, the truths that you believe about Jesus Christ, relational or intellectual? Abiding is relational and you stand firm in a deceptive world by abiding in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, there is so much deception in our world. Much of it's hard to recognize, even see comes across as light sometimes. It comes across nuanced. And yet you call us to stand firm, to recognize it. And you call us to remember that you, Father, have anointed us with the Holy Spirit. Every believer, every person that has put their faith in Jesus Christ has been anointed. Father, would you give us the strength to let that anointing abide in us, take root in us. That the gospel truths of Jesus would be real to us. In the midst of the storm, in the midst of the deception, in the midst of lies, that the truth would be real, that we would stand firm in it. Father, thank you for this meal, for the Lord's Supper.
that we get to taste your grace and taste your goodness. We pray that your Holy Spirit would do a mighty work right now of transformation and of renewal as we eat this meal that you have graciously given us. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.